everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of the TCLF one-on-one -on -one series. Through the one-on-one -on -one series, we aim to interact with the best legal professionals in India and abroad. And we're thrilled to have Ms. Radha Raghavan as our guest for the sixth episode. Ms. Radha Raghavan is a dual qualified international disputes lawyer and is admitted to practice in New York and India. She completed her undergraduate degree in law from Bangalore University in 2014 and subsequently went on to pursue a master's at the New York University School of Law. She's been a research scholar at NYU and a visiting research fellow at Columbia Law School and has worked on issues pertaining to international arbitration and dispute resolution. Currently, she's an off-counsel at Draper & Draper LLC in New York and has represented clients in various investment treaty arbitrations, commercial arbitrations, and litigations. She's authored papers on investment arbitration and was recently a moderator at a conference on the impact of COVID-19 on potential investment on investment arbitrations. It's an honor to have you here, ma'am. Thank you. Thanks, Nancy. So you are currently working with an international arbitration firm in New York, which is not only a, a popular seat of arbitration, but also a commercial and business hub. So what is your experience in, uh, in terms of pursuing an LLM at NYU and then having worked and interned with the Supreme Court in New York and now working with Draper? Okay, great. Um, firstly, before I answer that question, uh, I'd like to firstly thank the Contemporary Law Forum, uh, Shashwat and Tansi for uh, inviting me to speak to you uh, in this episode of one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Uh, I'm very privileged to be here and speak to you today. So to jump right into your first question, uh, my journey has been uh, both exciting and challenging. My first interest in investment arbitration uh, came about when I took my class of investment arbitration in law at NYU. Uh, I took my class there with uh, Professor Rob House and Don Donovan both stalwarts in international arbitration, um, and they taught me investment treaty arbitration, both from a theoretical and a practical perspective. And it was so invigorating to and interesting to listen to these professors bring alive what would happen within a hearing hall in the classroom. Uh, and these were names that we had read in, in textbooks, but to watch them Teachers Live was just a life-changing experience. Um, so my interest in investment arbitration started from there. And once I graduated from NYU, uh, I wanted to really do investment arbitration. Uh, but I realized that probably law firms wouldn't hire a fresh graduate out of uh, law school to, uh, to an investment arbitration practice and then so I was, of course, I was applying, but uh, I, I was really hoping, I was applying broadly, but I was hoping I'd get an investment arbitration opportunity. And uh, uh, by luck, I met Shreyas Jaisimha in Bangalore uh, one day on my trip uh, back home. And we were just discussing, and then he said, you know, there are some of the arbitrations which are coming in, um, and you're interested in arbitration. so. Uh, are you interested in working on this? And immediately I, I, I jumped at the opportunity and I was like, this is great. Like I want to do an uh, investment arbitration. So um, after my LLM 
I'm at NYU. Um, I did my OPT here in uh, the US, and then I moved back to India in 2016 to work with Arna Law um, on two arbitrations, and you were representing the government of India. And, um, um, and it, to say the least, it was one of the most thrilling and engaging uh, and the best two and a half years um, of my career. Uh, and it was the best way to start my career there with these uh, treaty arbitrations there. Um, and after that, I moved back to the US and then I took the bar exam and then I finished that. and. Uh, I interned at the ICC because I also wanted to get a kind of an institutional perspective. Uh, so I interned there and then uh, at one of the networking events, I met my current boss, Matt Draper, and uh, we got talking and now I'm working at Draper um, on, a, uh, on international commercial arbitration. So, uh, and that's been a fantastic experience so far. Uh, I get to do council work, and it's uh, great. Uh, it's, it's a great experience. Um, I still write about investment treaty arbitrations, um, and my uh, and I'm keenly interested in the subject. Uh, I've also written two papers on investment arbitration with chairs when I was at Arna. Uh, so that's been my experience, and I'm always open to new opportunities. Uh, I'm always keeping my eye out for writing opportunities, collaborating with people. So uh, I'm always looking to do more, and I'm very interested in the area. I read a lot in the area. So that's been my experience so far. And uh, like I said, it's been uh, both thrilling and challenging at the same time. But that is quite an interesting journey. And like you said, your passion does lie with investment arbitration, even though your work covers a range of commercial disputes. So while, however, investment arbitration is a more niche area of law in the dispute resolution um, forum. Right. So could you tell us more about um, how investment arbitration works? What are the basics of it and how it's different from other commercial disputes? Um, so like you mentioned, Tansi, investment arbitration is a pretty niche uh, practice area. Uh, there, there are few arbitrations in the world that are investment arbitrations. Um, so to first get to what is investment arbitration, it's basically uh, a subset of international arbitration, um, and it's a dispute resolution mechanism for foreign investors to enforce their rights under an investment agreement. Um, should their investment be economically or physically harmed by states uh, through the actions of a state. So that, in a nutshell, is what investment arbitration is about. Um, and it's important to note that the like an investment arbitration arises out of an investment treaty. Now, what are these investment treaties? Uh, investment treaties are agreements between two or more states where they decide what investor protections that they would offer to each other's investors and investors of their own states. Uh, so there are provisions such as uh, fair and equitable treatment. There's uh, a protection against expropriation uh, without effective and adequate compensation. There's a protection of full protection of security, national treatment, MFN, and there are umbrella clauses where 
contractual guarantees can be risen to the level of a treaty breach. So there are several protections under an investment treaty and investment arbitration arises out of this investment treaty. Now, the most important thing to understand about investment arbitration is, is it's different from a commercial arbitration in the sense that in a commercial arbitration, there, the dispute arises out of an agreement which would have an arbitration agreement clause within the agreement. So the arbitration agreement is the source of, gives the power to the tribunal to hear that issue. Now, an investment arbitration is not like that. It, the tribunal gets its powers from an investment treaty, which is not between the parties to the arbitration. The parties to the arbitration, investment arbitration is our investors and the state. So an investment treaty is not between an investor and the state. It is between the investors, uh, say where the investor is a national and the state in which the investor has made an investment. So the, so basically it is a, an agreement between the home state and the host state. Home state being the home of the investor and the host state being the state in which the investor has invested. So the investment treaty is between these two, but the investment arbitration is between the investor and the state. So the parties to the uh, agreement that gives the tribunal power is different from the parties who actually end up before the tribunal. And that's the fundamental difference between commercial and investment arbitrations. Because in commercial arbitrations, the parties to the agreement are the ones who are before the arbitral tribunal. So I guess I'll stop there for now uh, on what is investment arbitration and what the fundamental difference between these uh, commercial and investment arbitration is. That is quite interesting. And I'm sure many people didn't realize how different investment arbitration is from commercial arbitration and how it's dependent on state policy as well. And now coming to the current, um, current crisis, which is affecting almost every state's policy right now, which is the COVID-19 crisis. Now of the many disruptions caused by this pandemic, a disruption in supply chain and export regulations are one of them. So what do you think are the impact? What, what is the impact of these changes, specifically the restrictions on export? on investment treaties and foreign investors? And is there any industry that is particularly affected by these changes? Right. Uh, that's, that's a very good question, Tansi. There are several businesses that have been affected uh, because of the measures that states have taken. Uh, measures that can or cannot be challenged under an investment treaty, but they may be, uh, but these businesses are definitely affected in some way or the other. Uh, I'd like to give you a couple of examples um, in the restaurants and the retail industry. We have uh, companies, several companies filing for bankruptcy. For example, J. Crew, the fashion retail company, filed for bankruptcy. Gold's Gym, uh, a global and uh, a well-known gym brand in India, has also filed for bankruptcy uh, recently. There's also been a, a significant hit to the travel industry with flights being grounded for almost two, three months. Several airlines, almost 15 airlines, uh, or this is a numbers uh, till May 2020. This, it could probably be more now, but almost 15 airlines have gone bankrupt. And some of the bigger ones are Avianca, which is Latin America's 
most popular airline and there's South African Airways, which went bankrupt. There have been Airways which have been nationalized like Alitalia. Um, and of course, uh, there have been large sports events which have been canceled. For example, the Olympics, the Paralympics, uh, the tennis uh, matches. Then, the, then there have been nationalizations of hospitals. For example, Spain has had issued an order that it's going to nationalize all of its hospitals and healthcare to battle COVID-19. Uh, then governments have issued orders to take over hotels to convert them into hospitals. And this could be uh, with the consent of the hotel, without the consent of the hotel, um, the California state government, for example, has issued an executive order to take hotels to convert them. Then there have been orders to pause rents. Then there's been restriction to foreign investments from certain jurisdictions. Um, and coming to your point about export restrictions, there have been significant export restrictions on foodstuffs and medical supplies. Uh, almost 50 countries have restricted um, exports on medical supplies. So we see that businesses have been significantly affected by uh, the measures taken by states uh, to in response to COVID-19. Uh, but how much these businesses can get protection under an investment treaty would depend on whether there is an investment treaty that they can go under, whether they have which investment treaty they can seek protection under, and what their status is under that investment treaty because you'll have to look at the definition of an investor under that treaty and see if they fall within that definition. And I just want to go one step further to, exp to explain three uh, ways, two, three broad ways that a business can be brought under the definition of an invest uh, investor under an investment treaty. It's ways to think about, but of course, everything depends on the language of the treaty. One is if the business, let's say, um, is a locally incorporated subsidiary which is affected, but the parent company, which is a foreign company, could probably bring uh, a treaty claim against the state. Um, second is a shareholder of a locally incorporated company can bring a treaty claim against the state. Let's say um, it could be a majority or a minority shareholder. There have been cases that have gone both ways. Um, and there's, there's another question of can an intermediary company, which is a foreign company, can that company bring an investment, uh, investment treaty claim uh, for any harm caused to, a to another subsidiary on behalf of the parent company? So this is when there are several levels of companies and where an intermediary or middle level company can bring a treaty claim on behalf of a parent company for any harm caused to a further subsidiary company, right? Uh, and the answer to this is gray. It's not very straightforward. For example, uh, Saluka allowed intermediary companies to bring treaty claims despite them being merely shell companies. Uh, and on the other hand, Standard Chartered versus Tanzania brought in a new perspective and said intermediaries, which are shell companies, uh, and who are massive, uh, who are merely passive owners cannot bring these treaty claims. So it's not entirely straightforward and it, and it is largely dependent on the 
interpretation of the definition of investor invested under the treaty. So yes, a lot of businesses have been affected and uh, it, it has to be seen how, if they have any uh, remedies under any investment treaty. That's quite an interesting insight. I think that was a very detailed explanation of the various considerations that go into play. And it's not just about the effect on the business, but also the, the wording of the treaty as well. And coming closer to home, uh, in light of the pandemic control measures adopted in India and various other countries as well, like lockdowns and uh, suspension of, the, of um, manufacturing, as well as the consistent fall in demand, how do you think these measures by governments in India as well as abroad, how do you think they are impacting investment treaties and any claims that have come about? Okay, um, so in each case, each measure has to be uh, assessed on the basis of the investment treaty that's involved, the language of the treaty, what the facts of the case are, what are the considerations the state, uh, uh, to what are the circumstances in which a state took that particular action all of this has to be considered to determine whether it can be a successful treaty challenge or not. So uh, I can't comment directly on which, me or which measures can be challenged and how that would go, but on a general basis, there are different protections available to investors. For example, the fair and equitable treatment, the expropriation uh, protection, the full protection security, the non-discriminatory protections. So these are the protections that can be used uh, by businesses in order to challenge state action. And I'll, I'll go into each protection a little bit in, uh, to, a little bit in brief, so to kind of highlight how they can be used in order to challenge a state action. So for, for example, a fair and equitable treatment is basically a general protection of justice and fairness, and it protects against arbitrary state action. And it involves a consideration of issues like consistency, transparency, fairness, and proportionality of the government. Uh, it also ensures that states are adhering to the commitments that they made when the foreign investor uh, made the investment in the first place. And so basically the provision aims to protect the legitimate expectation of the investor. Now in the context of the pandemic, challenges based on proportionality, unfairness can be challenged. Uh, whether an action was proportional to the measure that they were trying to, uh, to the objective that they were trying to achieve. Were there less restrictive or alternative measures that were uh, possible? Uh, sometimes, you know, states may enact measures that they long wanted to, but use an emergency as a pretext to introduce these measures, and they may use uh, public interest as a reason to now introduce these measures. In these cases, investors can challenge the actions, and one such example uh, where such a measure was challenged was uh, in, in the case of S.T. Myers versus Canada, where Canada imposed a ban on the export of hazardous waste called PCB. The tribunal found that the real reason behind the ban was not to protect the environment, but to support the local Canadian waste disposal industry. Now, the tribunal also said that they, there were alternative, less restrictive measures that the state could have adopted 
in order to achieve its objective and they didn't have to uh, impose this ban on PCB and harm the investment uh, of uh, ST Myers. So the tribunal held that Canada was liable and in breach of its treaty obligations under NAFTA. So this is one example under uh, how FET was used to challenge a treaty measure and how it, it could potentially be relevant in the case of a pandemic. Now the next measure is full protection and security. And this standard requires the state to provide physical protection to investors. Some tribunals go one step further and says that it's just not physical protection, but it's also uh, legal security. Uh, so you need to main, maintain legal stability. Uh, one example for physical protection is Vina Hotels versus Egypt, where a lot of hotels were seized and Egypt was found in violation of the standard as it failed to prevent it despite having notice of it. Uh, the third would be the prohibition of expropriation without adequate and effective compensation. This protection can be used in order to uh, protect against any direct or indirect expropriation. Now, direct expropriation is basically the physical taking of property. Uh, and indirect expropriation is the destruction of the value of investment. Uh, in the case of a pandemic, usually it wouldn't be direct expropriation because you wouldn't have people surrounding your piece of land and just taking it. Uh, it would mostly be uh, claims of indirect expropriation where they say some measure uh, kind of destroyed the value of investment. And, in, and an exception to the rule of not to expropriate is the police powers exp uh, exception where an expropriation is allowed under an investment agreement if it is done in good faith for a public purpose and it provides adequate co compensation and is carried out in due, uh, in accordance with due process and in a non-discriminatory manner. Now this doctrine of police powers is a defense that states have for any action that they take in the interest of public interest. And a very relevant example in light of today's uh, global health pandemic is the Philip Morris versus Uruguay case, uh, where Uruguay had taken certain measures to control tobacco. Uh, for example, they said the advertisement on the uh, tobacco product has to be, uh, I think, 75% of the product of the packaging, and they'd introduce certain restrictions like this on the packaging. So. Uh, Philip Morris challenged these measures and said, this is uh, infringing on our IP, uh, on our trademark. So the tribunal went into this and said, Uruguay is, has not reached any treaty obligations because this was a measure that was introduced in the interest of public health. And therefore, and they upheld the doctrine of police powers. And under this doctrine, they said Uruguay was not liable. Uh, so this is one important case where public health was uh, came into consideration and uh, police powers was used for this. Moving on to other standards under uh, a BIT, we have the core non-discriminatory standards, which is the national treatment, the most favored nation. National treatment is basically uh, ensuring foreign investors and domestic businesses in like circumstances are treated equally. 
most favored nation uh, is ensuring foreign investors of one state is treated the same as foreign investors of a different state, provided they are again in, this, in like circumstances. Then you have the umbrella clause with the breach of a provision in a commercial contract between a state and an investor uh, can rise to the breach of an investment treaty. Now, this is basically the different tools that investors have against the state. But what are the defenses that states have? They have a couple of defenses under um, customary international law, like the defense of force majeure, defense of distress, defense of necessity. All of these defenses are found under the ILC uh, articles of state responsibility. Of course, defense of necessity is can be used only in very, very exceptional cases, and the threshold is pretty high. Um, the defense of distress precludes state liability for a measure taken by a person in distress in order to save a life. Uh, and the threshold for this is high, but you, you could argue that it, the pandemic would be a justifiable reason. Uh, and then the defense of force majeure is a principle where the state is compelled to act in a manner that results in the breach of its obligations. Uh, it may be difficult to use this in the case of COVID because it only applies to situations where performance is impossible and not where performance is simply more difficult. So that's, in broad strokes, the defenses that are available to states in addition to the police pass defense that I spoke about under international investment law. Of course, there's also uh, the non-precluded measures clause that states can look at, but I won't go into that. It's to me details, but that's broadly the kind of um, protections that investors have under treaties and what uh, and the defenses that states have under customary international law and investment law. So now coming to one of the industries in the world that has been that has been looked at by everyone, which is the pharmaceutical industry. So how do you think the various policies adopted by states um, in their own countries with respect to pharmaceutical industries will impact investment treaties? Okay, yeah, that's that's a very relevant question uh, in today's times, and you you see we're seeing a lot of states uh, introduce a lot of measures um, in terms of compulsory licensing rules, in terms of fixing of drug prices. Um, as pharmaceutical companies are racing towards finding a vaccine, or they're trying to find a better or more effective drug to cure COVID nineteen. There is, there is going to be a huge rush for patents. Uh, everybody wants their uh, in, invention to be covered by an intellectual property, right? So uh, a lot of states have introduced uh, these measures for compulsory licensing. For example, Canada has introduced the COVID-19 Emergency Responses Act of 2015, uh, or sorry, of 2020, which allowed it to use a patented invention in case of a public health emergency without negotiating with the patent holder and compensating the patent holder. Uh, France has also introduced the extreme public health measure uh, and which gives the prime minister the sweeping power to seize all necessary goods and services to fight against uh, san uh, sanity disaster. Germany introduced uh, compulsory licensing provisions for the first time on 28th March, 2020. Uh, and it brought in a new law, which is the Prevention and Control of Inve Infectious Diseases and Humans Act. So you see a lot of 
changes to licensing rules, fixing of prices. And this could potentially cause harm to pharmaceutical industries. And to look at a couple of, if there have been any patents or um, patents in the, in the interest of public health that has been challenged in the past, um, there's, there are just three cases where uh, patent cases came under scrutiny under investment treaty arbitrations. One of it is Ellie Lilly versus Canada. The other one is Philip Morris versus Uruguay, which I already discussed. And the other one was Philip Morris versus Australia, which was dismissed. Now, uh, Philip Morris versus Uruguay was ruled uh, that, that went in favor of the state. Philip Morris versus Australia was dismissed, so it <clears throat> went in favor of the state. Ellie Lilly versus Canada also went in favor of the state. And this was an IP-related dispute relating to patents. And it is pretty interesting because um, the tribunal left the doors open for a patent challenge under an investment treaty, even though a decision had been taken in the domestic courts. So there, the, the investor challenged the domestic court's interpretation of Canada's patent laws, and the investor alleged indirect expropriation of its investment and unfair and inequitable treatment. The tribunal dismissed these allegations, ruling that it did not find any drastic change to the patent law. While it dismissed these allegations, like I said, it's still left open uh, to a tribunal hearing these patent claims, even though a domestic court had already ruled on it. And this becomes relevant in this case because it shows how patent claims are susceptible to investment treaty challenges. And in a way, this becomes, uh, a, this, this a judgment becomes important because a lot of, uh, there, there could be a lot of threat to the state by investors and they may threaten and say that they're going to find an investment treaty challenge if they didn't change the rules and this has happened in the past countries with their limited resources they when they were threatened with an investment arbitration and with damages running into millions and billions of dollars they would be forced to settle so this could potentially have regulatory chill on the uh, state actions. States would not want to take a chance to get to have an award against them. Uh, it would literally wipe out their economy. So there, that risk is always there in, uh, when it comes to these kind of measures, where they're introducing it in the interest of public health. Uh, it relates to a patent or intellectual property, uh, but investors are threatening them with suits and you don't know how the result is going to go, so they may just settle. So that, that, is, that is one concern in this area. However, there's the counter argument to that is investment law itself has a lot of checks and balances. Like we discussed, there's the doctrine of police powers where the states can adopt. There are various defenses under the state that the states can adopt. Um, and especially in these uh, in these times where the World Health Organization has itself declared COVID-19 as a pandemic, the tribunal is going to give the states some amount of leeway in their action and not going to be too strict. 
Um, and that's that's how we've seen in the past, and that's probably what's going to happen. But of course, you know, states may still not want to take a chance and may settle. Uh, so Lilly versus Canada did create some amount of concern amongst international arbitration practitioners and uh, states with respect to this regulatory chill effect. Now, India has generally been um, seen to disfavor compulsory licensing. Uh, in the past, there have been only three compulsory licenses applications that have been filed, out of which only one application has been granted so far. Um, of course, the state, if they would, if they do um, introduce a compulsory licensing measure, uh, they definitely could justify it as police pass, um, as a necessity, but it, it's only one's guess how that would go. But India has generally been a jurisdiction which has seemed to disfavor compulsory licensing. So that's a broad uh, view about how the actions of a state affecting the pharmaceutical industry can be challenged under an investment treaty, uh, how ISDS has an effect on the state action and the issues involved there. That was quite interesting. I don't, I don't think we realized the impact in the, on patents that this pandemic has, apart from obviously the pharmaceutical industry instituting many voluntary agreements as well. I think that would be the best middle ground in this situation to have more voluntary licensing agreements. Right. Absolutely. Now, moving beyond the current pandemic and into the future, what do you think is, a, is an approach to foreign investment and trade that India can benefit from in terms of economic recovery and generating more FDI in the future? Right. So currently where India is, they're now adopting the new model BIT in order to renegotiate many of their investment treaties. Uh, there have been mixed reactions to the new model BIT. Uh, some say that the model BIT is pretty stringent. For example, there were talks between India and US to come up with a new BIT because there's no BIT between India and the United States. But uh, the US, I think, are not very comfortable with the stringent measures on the new B model BIT. So uh, the, the talks uh, seem to have been stalled there. But there, on the uh, on the flip side, we all recognize the interest of uh, the state where they want to balance both the state's right to regulate and the investor uh, protections. India had one bad incident with ISDS after White Industries in 2011. So that made them rethink their investment treaty regime and they went to a pretty stringent investment treaty regime. So it's understandably so, um, but of course there's also a flip side to this that developed countries are probably seeing this as very stringent measures on their investors. So I think there is still scope for India to find a middle ground to balance their, uh, their need to maintain uh, the state's right to regulate and the, to give investors a protection to make that so that they're comfortable to invest. Uh, this is not only uh, with respect to investors from other countries, which is capital imposed, but it's also 
uh, with respect to Indian investors who are investing abroad. Uh, and these days, capital outflows have increased, and it's more than $16 billion uh, as of 2018-19. So it's not a small sum, and there are a lot of investors from India investing abroad. So it makes sense for India to also uh, provide protections to foreign investors so that Indian investors are protected in those countries. Uh, so in order to achieve this middle ground, there's a very interesting uh, report by the Brookings Institute, which was published in 2018, and it was uh, written by Prabhash Ranjan and three other authors. Uh, and that's, that is a very, very good report in my view. Um, to bring about a middle ground in the in the provisions of the model BIT, for example, they suggest that um, uh, instead of a very uh, strict local exhaustion of local remedies clause, uh, they say, why don't you reduce the uh, requirement for exhaustion of local remedies to uh, from five years to three years, and then introduce a fork in the road provision. A fork in the road provision is where an investor would choose to either um, go to in a, go, go in the route of ISDS or go in the route of uh, domestic court. Um, and whichever route they take, they don't have, the other option is not available to them. So this would prevent investors from fighting both within the national courts and before investment tribunals for the same um, cause of action. So, that is that is a good report which would probably suggest what kind of changes can be made to the model BIT to bring about a model drug. In addition, uh, there are other examples that I can provide where states have negotiated uh, to bring about this balance. For example, we can look at the e EU-Canada uh, CETA, uh, and they have negotiated terms to ensure that the state's right to regulate is intact. Uh, the CETA provides that particularly that an indirect expropriation can be found only in very rare circumstances. Uh, they've also adopted the investment court system where they're setting up a permanent tribunal appointed by both states. They require um, uh, that the tribunal does not sit both as lawyers and arbitrators, which means there's no double hatting is allowed. Uh, they are also providing for an appellate mechanism. So that's one system that they've devised in order to bring about this balance. The other one is probably the uh, measures under the RCEP, which India seemed to be okay with. However, the RCEP does not have an ISDS mechanism, uh, but they could also look at uh, the nuanced approach that Australia took to ISDS, uh, where they said, that they will remove ISDS from their treaty, but they will negotiate for ISDS on a case-to-case -case basis. So by introducing that kind of a provision, they could ensure that the other foreign investor protections are comfortable to the investor. So these are ways that probably uh, India could, could take in, in the future, and there's a lot of debate happening in that respect, and we could probably see some changes. However, what exists today um, definitely goes 
to the fact that India is very concerned about uh, the, the loss of the state's right to regulate and the loss of state sovereignty in these actions. So uh, it's understandably so why their measures would be as it is. So <clears throat> while we can't really point to one or two mechanisms of what states can adopt, like these are the broad examples which we can look to to learn from. And uh, of course, each state has to uh, weigh the pros and cons in their own circumstances and whether they want to give these kind of protections or if they want to subscribe to this kind of an IFPS mechanism. But generally, these are examples that seem to be working for the nations that have adopted it. So that's my take on what India probably could do. That was definitely quite insightful, I think. And adopting a balanced approach is definitely what we should be prioritizing now as well. Even though, like you said, the, the, our right to state regulation sovereignty is important, especially in these circumstances um, to protect. That was extremely insightful. And thank you so much for explaining everything in so much detail and like, comprehensively. Um, just to conclude, would you have any advice for professionals and young lawyers who want to pursue investment arbitration? Yeah. Um... I'd say, firstly, reach out to people. Um, sorry. And reach out to people, seek out mentors. Uh, networking is very important. So start early. Use tools like LinkedIn uh, and these kind of professional networks to reach out to people. Uh, and the most important thing, I think, is set aside some time every week to read about the subject that you're interested in. And it's very important to catch up on the latest developments in the area of your interest, um, or to just even catch up on past landmark cases. So re set aside four or five hours to get yourself up to date with all of that. So when you're in a conference or you're in a networking event, you can talk to the practitioners uh, intelligently and get noticed. Uh, I think my other two uh, general piece of advice is one, your GPA is very, very important. Don't let that, um, don't sacrifice that for anything else because at the end of the day, most law firms look for a good GPA. And the last thing I'd like to say is be invested in your work, take ownership. If you're given a task, then do that research note with full interest. You need to take pride in your work. And uh, don't just do a very intelligent cut, copy, paste job uh, where the other person will make out what you did. Because at the end of the day, you're not learning anything from it. So when you're doing something, make sure you know that subject matter fully well so that tomorrow you can talk about it. And it's useful. It's, it's adding to your knowledge. I think that's about it. Of course, students hear this all the time from, uh, hear a lot of this advice from career services offices and um, whoever they approach for professional advice. But I think my whole piece of advice is this, seek out for mentors, set aside some time to learn about the latest developments, uh, focus on your GPA and be invested in your work. That was definitely really helpful. I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has learned so much about the various um, issues in, in investment treaties. I definitely learned a lot. 
and uh, thank you so much for taking out time and talking to us today um it was extremely extremely insightful great it was it was my pleasure talking to you today and thank you very much again for inviting me to speak and it was my privilege